0: If you notice in your bulletin this morning the, the outline for the message, it's a large passage that we're covering, and I'm not going to read the entire passage, but we're basically looking at Jesus brought before his um, interrogators, his persecutors, and eventually his executioners. We can read the narrative Many of us, I hope, have read it, and read it many times in the four different Gospels, piecing together the events of Jesus' passion as he is on trial, the righteous man condemned by the wicked. But we can also get lost in the details, and I want to avoid that. So we're going to look at Jesus before his interrogators, perhaps in a little bit different light, actually borrowing, and I think rightly so, from the Gospel of Luke this morning. But I want to read in Matthew 27, I'm sorry, I'm going to read in 26. I had selected a verse in 27 that I'm going to look at after I start in chapter 57, I'm sorry, chapter 26, verse 57. Listen to the word of the Lord. And those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was also following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they might put him to death. And they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you make no answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robe, saying, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard it. How? Excuse me. Behold you, have how, behold, you have how heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death. Turn with me over to Matthew 27 in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And yet he did not answer them with regard to even a single charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. Let us pray. Father, we are familiar with these events, the events of our Lord's passion of his false and unjust trial leading to his execution. We ask this morning that by the grace of your Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to the events that are going on here and show us your hand in it all. and Show us your plan and your purpose even though what we appear to see is the plan and purpose of wicked men. Yet we know that you are a sovereign God and that nothing comes to pass apart from your will and your knowledge. So we ask that you would give us wisdom as we look into your word, that you would do this for your glory and for our growth in grace. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. During World War II three men, three leaders of their nations were known as the big three. Franklin, Delano Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Joseph Stalin. They were an unlikely triumvirate, but they had a common enemy that brought them together. They were united for the purpose of the war. Immediately afterwards, of course, that union broke down and we entered into the Cold War. Here, in the passion of our Lord, we also have an unlikely triumvirate. Only two of whom are mentioned in Matthew. Luke brings in the third member of this unholy triumvirate, Caiaphas, the high priest. Of course, we've met him. Pontius Pilate, the procurator of the Roman Empire in Judea. And Herod Antipas, the king of Galilee, the son of Herod the Great. These three men would come together. They would unite in the trial and the persecution and the execution of Jesus Christ. But what brought them together was not a common enemy. For Herod's interest in Jesus of Galilee was one of pure curiosity. He was a miracle worker. He he raised people from the dead. Pilate's interest in Jesus was not at all. He could care less about the Jewish religion and about its teachers and the Roman policy in general was to allow the conquered people to worship however they wanted to as long as it didn't interfere with their paying taxes. And the procurator of the Roman Empire was primarily responsible for collecting taxes and getting that money back to Rome. Caiaphas was the one who had a grudge, who had a bone to pick with this Galilean rabbi Caiaphas is the one who had already prophesied, although unwittingly, that one man would die for his people. Since the expulsion of the Greeks, about 200 B.C., the high priesthood of the Jewish nation had become a political office. Israel had no king. They were ruled at first by the Greeks who had succeeded Alexander the Great, Then afterwards, they were ruled by men who were descendants of Judas Maccabeus. They were known as the Hasmoneans. And they ruled as somewhat like kings, but they were not from the tribe of Judah. They were actually Levites. So technically, they had no business being kings. And so they generally took over the role of the high priesthood, from which position they ruled Judea. But while they were of the lineage of Levi, they were not of the lineage of Aaron, and say they had no right to the high priesthood. By the time of Caiaphas, many of the Jews had broken away from them and from the temple. A group known as the Essenes had left the temple and had set up their own worship out in the desert because they believed that the non-Aaronic priesthood was corrupting Judaism. We know from reading the scriptures that the high priests and the Sadducees were, were not terribly religious. They were very liberal with regard to the scriptures. We know, we read, that they did not believe in the spirit, nor did they believe in the resurrection of the body. Caiaphas was a political maneuverer. He was very, very good. This Caiaphas actually ruled as high priest longer than any other man during the entire period of the second temple. So he was good at what he did. And he was the one who answered his compatriots when they were complaining and murmuring and saying, oh, you all know nothing. And they said, if we let him go on like this, meaning Jesus, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, Caiaphas wasn't about to let that happen. And so he was going to get rid of this one pesky rabbi and save the nation for himself, for his family, and for the high priesthood. But he had a problem, and his problem was technical. You see, the Jewish people at this time were very partial about how things were done. First of all, it was illegal to have a trial at night, like this one. Remember, Jesus was arrested at night and brought immediately to the house of Caiaphas. Now, John tells us that first Jesus was brought to Annas, who was Caiaphas' father-in-law and predecessor as high priest. And it was a matter of respect, because in the ancient Near East, everybody tended to live. The whole family lived in the same compound. And when you enter into a home, you always acknowledge the eldest male. So Jesus and John was taken to Annas and then to Caiaphas. But Caiaphas was the one who was bringing about Jesus' death, or at least he thought he was. So he had a problem, trials at night, were forbidden. Another problem, you can't execute during a holy day or a Sabbath. It is against the law to execute a criminal during a high holy day, a feast, or the Sabbath. But his biggest problem were the Jews, because Jesus was very popular. Now, they had already gotten rid of John the Baptist, but that was done by Herod. That was done by, as we'll see, someone who was not really Jewish and someone who the people generally hated anyhow. But Caiaphas was faced with the problem, how do I get rid of this man? How do I get rid of this rabbi without having the entire people who, by the way, most of the nation happens to be in Jerusalem this weekend because it's the feast of the Passover? Not a really good time to execute a very popular teacher one who is known to work miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, and might even be the Christ. What do I do about this? I'll get the Romans involved. I'll pawn it off on the Romans. Pilate, procurator and prefect of Judea since A.D. 26, so this is about four years or five years, into his office He would last another four or five years before being recalled from Rome. But Judea was not a plum posting for a Roman. It was basically a desert occupied by one of the most rebellious and incorrigible people the Romans had ever conquered, the Jews. So one wonders how Pilate got on Tiberius' bad side to manage to land the governorship of Judea. His responsibility was to keep the peace and to avoid any more revolts and rebellions which the Jews had already done and which they would do again twice more before the Roman legions would finally crush Judea completely, rename it, rename the city of Jerusalem, and, of course, we know in AD 70, tear down the temple. So Pilate's not interested in any riots during the Feast of Unleavened Bread when most of the Jewish people are in Jerusalem. And we read in the scriptures, and we think, oh, Pontius Pilate, he's the the one who killed our Lord. But if you read in the Gospels, you you realize how hard he tried to get out of it. How, How do I get out of this? He has no interest whatsoever in their religious arguments. And so getting Pilate to execute Jesus would take all the political cunning that Caiaphas could muster. He had to change the charge from blasphemy, about which the Romans could care less, to treason, which was a capital offense under the Roman Empire. Which is why Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And we read, especially in John's account of Pilate's interview of Jesus, that Jesus tells him the nature of his kingdom, tells him of the power of his kingdom. And after that conversation, Pilate is redoubling his efforts to set Jesus free. But Caiaphas, he's he's too good. Pilate is between a rock and a hard place. But he hears that Herod's in town for the feast. Herod is the king of Galilee. Jesus, of course, is from Galilee. Herod has an idea. Let's get, I'm sorry, Pilate has the idea. Let's get Herod involved. Let's pawn this off on Herod because Herod's a Jew. And we can blame him. So he sends him off to Herod. Who really could care less except he wants to see the show. He's trying to get Jesus to do some miracles for him. Probably offered him money. Herod's an interesting situation, his family. Of course, he's the son of Herod the Great. He must have been pretty capable to have survived Because Augustus Caesar said of Herod the Great, I'd rather be his pig than his son. Because as a Jew, Herod wouldn't kill his pig. His sons didn't fare so well. Herod was an Idumean, which means he was an Edomite. Now that may mean nothing to you, until you hear that the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. The one who sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage. Of whatever was porridge, okay? The one who rejected his covenant God in favor of food. And so the Jews of Galilee had over them a king who was not the descendant of Jacob, but rather the descendant of Esau, which, by the way, actually fulfills the prophecy that Isaac made over the two boys, that while the blessing would go to Jacob, eventually Esau would throw off his yoke and would rule over him. So the family of Herod was not popular among the Jews. They had converted to Judaism, but they were never accepted as Jews. So really, Pilate, not understanding any of this, wasn't going to get any help from Herod. Even if Herod had said, yeah, this man is deserving of death, kill him, that wouldn't have That wouldn't have uh, have calmed the Jews any. They would have been even more upset that Herod got involved. But of course, Herod, looking just for a show and not getting it, sent him back to Pilate and said, I don't see anything wrong with him. I don't see anything in him worthy of death. Well, Pilate thinks he can use this. And he goes back to the Jews. He goes back to Caiaphas and says, what's wrong with this guy? There's nothing wrong with him. He's done nothing worthy of death. Now, just to give you an indication of the Roman justice system, Pilate says, therefore I will punish him and release him. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with him. He hasn't done anything wrong, but I'm going to scourge him and punish him, and then I'll release him, just in case he's thinking about doing anything wrong. So, Pilate is still in a bind, and Caiaphas is not getting his way. But you know what really is shocking about all of this is Jesus' behavior. We're reading through the Gospels, and on a number of occasions, the Jews sought to lay hands on Jesus. They tried to arrest him. At one point, his his neighbors tried to throw him off a cliff in Nazareth. And each of those times, what did he do? He simply walked through them. He walked away. Even in the garden, John tells them, when they came to arrest him, and he said, who are you seeking? And they said, Jesus. And he said, I am. And they fell down. But now he is impotent. We read that he is silent. He will not answer the questions that are charged against him. He's hit, punched, buffeted, and he utters not a word. So much so that the Roman procurator is amazed, like a lamb that is led to slaughter. So he did not open his mouth. And we're left to wonder, were these powerful men arrayed against him more powerful than him? Caiaphas, as I said, would have the longest high priesthood in the Second Temple era. Herod Antipas, that's pretty amazing, he stayed on his throne for 43 years, which is a long time in the ancient world. A pilot, of course, wielded the most power because he had command of the Roman legions. These were powerful men. Were these men, were these forces of world power too much for Jesus? At times, it seems, in reading history and even looking around us, it does seem sometimes that the powers of man are stronger than the powers of God. At times, it seems as if God's purpose is stymied by man's system. That God can't get his way because man is standing in the way. And many times, Christians and the church, God's people, rely on man's system to bring about God's purpose. That's pretty common in our country. We want to elect officials who will pass laws that will bring about moral reformation in our country. And while on the one hand we certainly don't want to elect officials that will pass immoral laws that will bring about unrighteousness, moral reformation comes through spiritual regeneration which comes by the gospel. The last time I checked, Congress wasn't preaching the gospel. And so, man's ways and God's purposes have always been at odds. And we, as the people of God, have have not always been able to figure out which one's on top. And there have been times throughout church history where the people of God have despaired that perhaps man is a bit more powerful than God and is able to block God's purpose. So the question we have here is just that. The dispensationalist teaches that Jesus was executed because the Jewish nation rejected him as their Messiah and that with the wickedness of man overpowered the redemptive purposes of the Messiah because had they accepted him, according to this teaching, Jesus would have established the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem and would have begun the millennial reign. Now that is, to me, basically saying that the systems of man are more powerful than the purposes of God. But I would say to you that Jesus was not impotent against these world powers, but rather he was submissive to the will of his Father in heaven. Listen to what he says in verse 53 of Matthew 26. Of course, we know from another account that it was Peter who drew the sword, not that we would have ever doubted. And he tells him to put away the sword and he says, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? He's telling us there at the beginning of all this, Don't you think for a moment that I do not have the full power of God? He even tells the Roman procurator, You would have no authority over me if it were not given to you from above. He was not impotent. He was not cowed. He was not bowed down by these forces arrayed against him. The explanation that Jesus gives, recorded by Matthew and Mark, is is a good one. And we looked at that last week. That the scriptures be fulfilled. But this morning I want to look at the explanation that was given or recorded by Luke. Because it goes deeper. Deeper. And not only does it go deeper into what we're reading about the trial of Jesus Christ, but it goes deeper into the workings of world history and man's power versus God's purpose. Luke records Jesus saying, But this is your hour and the power of darkness. That's what this is all about. This is divine destiny, not dispensationalism. It's not the result of Israel rejecting her Messiah. Rather, it's the long-awaited moment when the field would be turned over entirely to Satan. They came against Jesus with clubs as if he were a criminal. And he says to them, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And I don't think he was talking to them at all. He was looking at the agents of the evil one, but he was talking to the evil one himself. Earlier, when they were in the upper room, Jesus says to his disciples, the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. There was a conflict between two powers compared to which Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Hitler, Napoleon and any other world power you can think of combined look like Girl Scouts selling cookies. This was the conflict of the ages between the deceiver of mankind and the savior of mankind. Between Lucifer, prince of the devils, and Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Jesus was speaking through the guards. To the one, the prince of darkness. And he said, This is your hour. This is the hour that has been promised to you from the beginning. This is the day and the time when you will have free reign and you will go up against the seed of woman. And I will not call 12 legions of angels, and I will not call Michael, and I will not call Gabriel. And even my father will turn his face from me. This is your hour and the power of darkness. That's what's going on here. Satan had been waiting for this moment for 4,000 years. He jumped the gun through Herod the Great. You remember when Herod proclaimed that all boys two years and unders would be executed in the territory of Bethlehem, trying to find this young child, born king of the Jews, that wasn't Herod. That was merely Herod as the instrument of the devil. He utterly failed in his attempt to entice Jesus to the dark side during the temptation of our Lord. But the Son of God himself had just pronounced this to be his hour. This was his moment The triumph of darkness had come. We sing a song, one of the verses, there in the tomb his body lay. Light of the world by darkness slayed. That's what's going on here, folks. We get, we get wrapped up in the people, and, and I read so many commentaries where they talk about what happened to Pilate later and, and what happened to Caiaphas. I don't care what happened to them later. They're pawns of the devil. This is the battle of the ages. Coming down to this moment, this hour, the power of darkness, given its opportunity There's a silly view of sovereignty that I've heard over the years, that God only controls the big events, but the little things he lets to us. It's an attempt by people who want to find a place for the obvious ability that we have to make choices, right? We all make our own choices and yet realize that, that God's sovereign purpose has come to pass, especially in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what they say is, yeah, yeah he, appointed, he appoints the big things, like the Alexander the Greats, okay, or, or the Caiaphas, or the Pilate. God gets involved, but, but not the little things. Now, that's, that's what I call a silly view of sovereignty, because any student of history will know that the big events are nothing more than The cumulative effect of countless indistinct and unnoticed small events. Every single event that we call big and historic is nothing but the result of a multitude of small events, each one of which is also controlled by our sovereign God. Klaus Schilder writes, he directed the battles of Caesar, the conflicts of kings, the migrations of peoples, the world wars, the courses of the stars and the sun and the moon, the change of epochs, and the complex movements of all things in the world in such a way that this hour would come and had to come. From the moment God said to the serpent that the seed of woman would come and you would bruise his heel and he would crush your head. From that moment, all through history, this hour was coming and had to come. Through all of the exodus, through all of the exile, through all of the prophecies, through Israel's rise and Israel's fall, through the Davidic kingdom and its demise, all events, including the rise of the Roman Empire, which is prophesied in Daniel, pointed to this hour and the power of darkness. What happened at Gethsemane and Golgotha was not about Caiaphas or Pilate or Herod or even Peter or Judas. It was the struggle of light against darkness. And it was the moment when darkness would be given the appearance of victory. As we read Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You've all read that verse, I'm sure. It's a bit scary, isn't it? Isn't it a bit scary to think that my enemy is not my neighbor? My enemy is not flesh and blood like I am. My enemy is not one that I think I might be able to take on if the chips were really down. My enemy is actually, oh dear, rulers and powers and forces of the darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly place. No, thank you. It is scary. Until we remember that Jesus Christ, for our sake, met the full fury of Satan's wrath in Satan's hour, and the power of darkness, and triumphed in the cross. Let us pray. Father, we cannot fully comprehend what that struggle must have been for our Lord when he and Satan, as it were, entered the ring, just the two of them. And Father, it's even more amazing to realize that he did not enter into that ring with the full power of deity, but as man. As the Son of Man, he met Satan in his hour and the power of darkness. And as the Son of Man, triumphed through the cross. And Father, we exalt our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God and the Son of Man our man in glory. And we rejoice to know that the power of darkness has been defeated by the Prince of Light and that we in Christ have been made children of light and no longer the children of darkness. And so, Father, we ask that with the knowledge that our Lord has made the way open before us, he has cleared the field. He has taken away the condemnation that was written against us and humiliated these powers of through his victory over death that we might walk in the light and not fear knowing that our battle is not against flesh and blood that we would still not fear for our champion has won the victory and has given us the laurels. We praise you Father for this great salvation that no man could have dreamed up and no angel could have wrought but only our Almighty God through his Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand this morning for the benediction, short benediction from Paul's second letter to Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you.